We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from John 17. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. We welcome you to Resurrection Oakland. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't met you yet, I would love to get to meet you and learn your name after the service. So please come introduce yourself. As Dave mentioned, we started a new series last week, uh, and it's a vision series. And every fall we do this. We take three weeks out of the fall to talk about why we exist as a church. And that's a really important question uh, to answer, whether you're new to our church or whether you've been around for a while. If you're new, and and many people are, um, you're probably asking, "What, what is this church about? And if you've been around for a little while, uh, we need to come back to this over and over and over again because the more we grow as a church, I mean, I said this last week, we just went to two services. The more we grow as a church, the easier it is to forget why we exist, why we're here. This is, this is the gravitational pull of, of any church when it begins to grow, is that it's so easy to think, oh, church is just this thing that we go to for an hour or two on Sunday mornings, rather than this mission that we're actually on together. So what is our vision as a church? Well, in the fall of 2017 and the winter of 2018, before we ever had our very first service, our first service was on March 18th, 2018. Before we had our first service, before we even had a name, when we were just 30 people meeting in somebody's living room to pray about starting a new church in Oakland, This is what we said. We said our vision is to be a church not just for ourselves, but for the unconvinced and for this city. And a lot has changed over the last five years, but that has not changed. A lot has changed in our church. That has not changed. That is still our vision. Um, But what I want you to really see in this series is that this is is Jesus' vision, for the church. I mean, it's one thing for us to talk about our vision is for the church, but it's an entirely more important thing, actually, to talk about Jesus' vision for the church. Well, what is Jesus' vision for the church? What does Jesus want for the church? I said this last week that John 17, in John 17, we find the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the whole New Testament. And what does Jesus pray for? The whole chapter is a prayer, and it is a prayer for the church. 
And what we learn in this prayer is we actually learn what Jesus wants for the church. We learn his vision for the church. And so last week, we talked about what it means to be a church. Uh, We saw that the main purpose of the church is the glory of God. I think this is, we just need to pause here for a moment because this goes a little bit against our kind of American Western mentality. We tend to walk into churches and say, what's in it for me? Do I like the music? Do I like the preaching? How's the coffee and the donuts? You know, like, are my people here? Uh, we tend to kind of walk in thinking it's about us. And, and what Jesus is actually says is, no, it is about God. The main purpose of the church is the glory of God. And we, we, we embody that really in three ways. By being a community that knows Christ, that is changed by Christ, and that is one in Christ. That was last week's sermon. And today we come to the not just for ourselves, but for the city part. What does it mean to be a church for the city? We learn a couple things in this passage, and here's the first. It means that we are a church that loves the city. A church that loves the city. So look at verse 15 and 18 here again. Jesus says, my prayer, he's praying to the Father, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus prays not that we would be out of the world, but that we would be in the world. Now, what does it mean to be in the world? Well, Jesus has to be praying for something more significant here than just that we would be physically in the world. I mean, you're alive. You're in this room today. You're in the world, right? (laughs) What does Jesus mean? What Jesus means when he talks about being in the world is he's talking about the posture of our hearts towards the world. And what he's doing is he's praying that we would love the world as he loves the world, for God so loved the world. He's praying that we would love the world like he loves the world. And get this, I would even go so far as to say he's praying that we would love the city like he loves the city. And you say, wait a minute, where is the word city in this passage? Because I didn't see that anywhere. Okay, let's zoom out of John 17 for just a moment. Do you know that the Bible starts in a garden? You probably know that, but do you know how it ends? It ends in a city. In Revelation chapter 21, John, we get this vision of eternity. And John writes this, he says, then... Uh, He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. John gets this vision of heaven, and it is a vision of a holy city. And you say, you know, I'd get a lot more excited about heaven if it was like a holy Lake Tahoe or a holy Yosemite. Uh, Listen, there's a lot of beauty in eternity because Revelation 21 talks about a garden the garden of Genesis 1 and 2 shows back up it talks about a tree that represents the healing of the nations it talks about a river that represents the waters of life but what Revelation 21 says is that when God gets the world the way that he wants it in the end it will be an urban world it'll be a city 
God loves cities. And friends, this is all over the Bible. Once you kind of see it for the first time, it'll just jump out at you in ways you've never seen it before. Um, In Jonah chapter 4, when God sends Jonah to Nineveh, the very last verse of the book of Jonah is this. God says to Jonah, should I not be concerned about that great city? In Jeremiah chapter 29, when the Israelites are exiled in Babylon, God says to them, I want you to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. In Luke chapter 19, when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem the week before his death, what Luke tells us is that Jesus sees the city and he begins to weep. He sees the brokenness of the city and he loves the city and so he weeps over the city. God loves the city. And if you are a Christian, he wants you to love it too. See, you can be in the city. You can be in the city, but not really in the city. You can be physically present in the city. You can live in the city, but you don't love the city. The the posture of your heart towards the city is one of apathy or disdain or self-righteousness. And so you, 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 you look down on the city and all you see are the problems of the city. And all you think about is getting out of the city, you know, moving somewhere where it's much easier. So you, you can be in the city, but not in the city. You don't love the city. God loves the city. He wants us to love the city. But sometimes it's hard to love the city. I mean, let's just be honest for just a moment. There's a lot of things that are hard to love about this place right now. I've lived here almost 20 years. Some of you, you've spent your whole life here. I've never seen the city as broken as it is right now. Homelessness is at a peak. Crime is at a peak. Schools are getting shut down for lack of funds. There there are communities in this city where people are afraid to send their children outside to play during the day, where they can't send their children outside to play. People are living in fear. We've had people in this church who've been assaulted in this city. The city is broken. The A's are leaving. Oh my gosh, what is happening? You say, how can I love the city when it's so broken? When things feel so dark? Well, loving the city is a lot like loving a spouse after 40 years of marriage. When when you first fall in love with somebody, your attraction to them is based on all of these nice superficialities, right? Right? Why are you attracted to them? The figure, the physical beauty, you know, or their hobbies or their career passions and interests. You know what happens after you've been 40, married for 40 years? All those things are gone. The career is gone. Most of the hobbies are gone. The figure is gone. The hair is often gone. (laughs) 
but your love has grown. It's, it's a, your love has become even more intense. Why? Because you've come to see the deeper, more meaningful things about that person. There is a way to love the city for the superficial things. If you're not from here, can I just talk to you for just a moment? This can be especially true of people who move here. You say, you know what? Oakland is awesome. You know why Oakland is awesome? Because the food is amazing. There's so many great places to eat. Or, you know, Tahoe is three hours away. I mean, I can, I can get there on a Friday. You know, San Francisco, just across the bridge. Napa, an hour away. Carmel, Monterey, just two hours away. You can love the city for the superficial things. And if your love is based on the superficial things, then your love will not last. You will eventually grow tired of this place. And you will be in the city, but you won't really be in the city. You won't, you won't love it. To love the city means you don't just love it for the superficial things, but it means that you've come to love it because you see the deeper, more meaningful things. What are those? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you just two this morning about Oakland. Uh, here's the first. People. People. There are more people per square inch in the city than anywhere else. And you say, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of why I don't like this place. It's crowded. Parking's hard. Be great if there weren't so many people. Listen, the Bible says that all of creation reflects the glory of God. Uh, the sunset, the ocean, the mountains, the skies proclaim God's glory, is what the psalmist writes. Creation, creation represents the glory of God, but nothing like people represent the glory of God. The Bible says that every single person, regardless of color of your skin or what class you're born into, every single person is made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. That reflects the glory of God in a way that nothing else in creation does. That means that there is more glory of God walking around the city than anywhere else. And if you come to see people the way that God sees people, you come to love the city the way God loves the city. Here's the second thing, not just people, but the poor. The poor are in the city. We talk a lot about being a church that wants to love the poor and care for the poor and be engaged with the poor. But I want you to know that's not just because we believe we have much to offer the poor. It's because we believe we have much to receive from the poor. James chapter 2 verse 25 says this, has God not chosen, has God not chosen um, those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? Some of us, we are rich in money. We are rich in career. We are rich in family. But we are poor in faith. What James is saying is, is that there's a trust in God that the poor often have. There's a closeness to God that the poor often have. There is a desperation for God that the poor often have. And if you want to be rich in faith, then you need to get close to the poor. Not just because you have much to give, but because you have much to receive. And guess what the city does? 
it opens the floodgates for you to get near to the poor. See, to be a church that loves a city, we've got to come to see the deeper, more meaningful things about this place. And we need to be a church that's, that's the, the, a community of people who love the city. There are hard things about the city. It is okay to be honest about those hard things. I'm not trying to paint a glossy picture this morning. But we are called to love the city in the midst of all of its brokenness because God loves the city in the midst of all of its brokenness. That's what it means to be a church for the city, a church that loves the city. Here's the second thing that it means. It means to be a church that confounds the city. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 14 and 16 here. Jesus says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. He says it again. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Jesus says, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. What does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world? Or what does it mean to be in the city, but not of the city? Well, here's what it means. It means that our lives ought to look so different. They ought to be so countercultural to the way that most people here live that people should look at us and say, what world are you Christians from? You don't seem to be of this world your lives don't look like other people's lives. Malcolm Gladwell, who's a sociologist, he wrote a book called David and Goliath. And uh, in this book, he tells his own personal story of how he came back to Christianity. He was raised in a devout Christian home, and in his adolescent and adult years, he, he totally walked away from Jesus. But then he found his way back. And the way that he found his way back was when he was doing research for this book, he went to Winnipeg, Canada to interview a woman named Wilma Dirksen. Wilma and her husband, actually. 30 years before he sat down with Wilma and her husband, their daughter Candace was walking home from school one day, and she never showed up at home. Totally disappeared. Uh, Winnipeg, it became the largest manhunt in Winnipeg's history. And about a week after this manhunt started, they found Candace's body. She had been brutally murdered, and she was a quarter of a mile from home. After her funeral, they held a news conference, and virtually every major news outlet in Canada had shown up to this news conference. And uh, Wilma and her husband were asked, how do you feel about the person who did this to Candace? They, they had not caught the person yet. And they were asked, how do you feel about whoever did this to Candace? And what Wilma and her husband said is, we would like to know who did this so that we could share a love that seems to be missing in their lives. And this is what Gladwell writes. He says, who says that? Who has the ability to say that after your daughter was brutally murdered? Who has the ability to care about the murderer? I had rejected the faith until I met Wilma Dirksen, and it changed me. Malcolm Gladwell looked at these people and he said, who lives like this? Do, do people look at your life and ask that question? Do, do they look at your life and say, 
Who lives like this? And not just in terms of forgiveness, although that is a very, very important one because it is something our society is lacking greatly these days. We know really well how to be mad at each other. We do not know how to forgive one another. People look at your life and say, who lives like this? Not, but not just in terms of forgiveness, but in terms of everything. You know, following Jesus changes everything about your life. It changes what you do with your money, what you do with your body. It changes how you vote, what you do with your politics. It changes who you sleep with and who you date and who you marry. It changes how you think about your career paths. If you're a parent, it changes how you parent your children. You don't have the same hopes and dreams and goals. It puts you on a very different path. Following Jesus is not just modifying your behavior here and there. It is a whole new way of life that is not of this world. And when you begin to live a life like that, a life that confounds people around you, a life that people look at and say, what world are you from? And why do you live this way? Jesus makes a promise to you. Yeah, he gives us a promise. And it's actually in this passage, just in the very first part of verse 14. Look at this. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Why? For they are not of the world. The promise is, when you live a life that confounds people, a life of following Jesus, you will be hated. Say, is there, is there another promise? I'm wait, like, is there a better promise? <laughs> Jesus says, you will be hated. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13 says it this way. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. Now, we need to be really careful here because there's a lot of wrong reasons Christians are often hated. Sometimes we're hated because people experience us as being very judgmental. They experience us as being self-righteous. They experience us as saying, you know, there are some people who belong in the church and some people who don't. We we seem exclusive. Uh, Sometimes we're hated because we think we're standing up for what we believe and really we're just kind of being obnoxious. And what we need to do is we need to make sure that if we're hated, it's for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons. And Jesus says in this passage, there's one reason. (laughs) There is one reason for you to be hated. And it is because you are not of this world and you live a countercultural life. That your life, the world, the world is going this way and your life is supposed to be going this way. You know, imagine if, if imagine a, a downward escalator and it is packed full of people. All these people coming down this escalator and you get on the escalator at the bottom and you start trying to come up. How are people going to feel about you? They're going to be a little irritated. <laughs> and this is a picture of your life if you're a Christian. The world is going in this direction, and Jesus says, your life ought to be going in this direction. The world says, live by your own truth. What's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, you do you. Live by your own truth. Jesus says, live by God's truth. The world says, 
Do whatever makes you happy as long as you're not hurting someone else. And Jesus says, submit your whole life to God and honor him and follow him even when it seems to cut into your happiness. The world says, get as much as you can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And Jesus says, give as much as you can. The world says the way to be great is to go up. And Jesus says the way to be great is to get low and to serve. And so to be a church for this city means that we were called to live lives that confound the city. Lives that are so countercultural that, that on the one hand they, they offend people at times, and yet at the same time they are so attractive and compelling because there's something really different about them. What does it mean to be a church for the city? It means that we love the city. We live lives that confound the city. Here's the last point. It means that we're a church that blesses the city. Verse 18, Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Notice that word, sent. We are to be sent people. We are to be sent people. Most People think of church as a place to go. And Jesus says, no, church is not a place to go. It is a people who go. That the goal is not to get people out of the world or out of the city and into the church. The goal is to get people out of the church and into the world and into the city. Why is this the goal? So that we can be a blessing to this place so that we can be the hands and the feet of Jesus, bringing the healing and the hope and the restoration of God's kingdom to the poor, to the vulnerable, to the marginalized, to the outsider, to the unhoused, to the widow, to the orphan, to the refugee, to the immigrant, to those who feel forgotten in this world and in this city. And this is why we partner with ministries like Harbor House and City Team and Grateful Gatherings and Martin Luther King Elementary and West Oakland, because we want to be a church that is known in this city for the way that we love and serve and bless this city. And maybe you think, I've never seen a church like that. Well, do you know that this is what the first church was known for. The earliest Christians, they were known for the way that they blessed the city. Look at this quote. This is from Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark uh, did his PhD at Berkeley, actually. He's a soci he was a sociologist. He, he died, actually, in July. Um, he, as far as I know, he, was, he did not claim to be a follower of Jesus, but he did extensive research on the early church, the first Christians. And this is, this is what he says, in a world entirely lacking social services, the willingness of Christians to care for others was put on dramatic public display when two great plagues swept the empire, one beginning in 165 and the second in 251. Mortality rates climbed higher than 30%. Pagans tried to avoid all contact with the afflicted often casting the still living into the gutters. But Christians, on the other hand, nursed the sick, even though some believers died doing so. 
Christian social services also were visible and valuable during the frequent natural and social disasters afflicting the Greco-Roman world. Earthquakes, famines, floods, riots, civil wars, and invasions. Christianity also offered a strong community in a disorganized, chaotic world. Greco-Roman cities were terribly overpopulated. Antioch, for example, had a population density of about 117 inhabitants per acre, more than three times that of New York City today. The smell of sweat, urine, feces, and decay permeated everything. Outside on the street, mud, open sewers, and manure lay everywhere, and even human corpses were found in the gutters. Newcomers and strangers, divided into many ethnic groups, harbored bitter antagonism that often erupted into violent riots. For all these ills, Christianity offered a unifying subculture bridging these divisions to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished. Christianity offered charity and hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate fellowship. And to cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. The earliest Christians, the first Christians, they were known for the way that they blessed the city, and we ought to be too. And this is why we have what I like to call a 25-year hope here at Resurrection Oakland. We're, we're five years into our existence. We have what we call a 25-year hope, and that hope is this, is that in 25 years, we are so engaged in the needs of this city. We are so radically generous with our money and our time and our talents and our treasures towards the city. We are so sacrificial in the ways that we serve the city that there would be people, that if we were to have to shut our doors one day and we were to cease to exist as a church, that there would be people in this city who do not come to this church and who do not believe what we believe who would say, Oakland is worse off without Resurrection Oakland in this place. We miss those people. Can you imagine what a church would look like if people talked about it like that? I mean, wouldn't you want to be a part of a church like that? I want to be a part of a church like that. I want to pastor a church like that. And see, here's the question. The question is, what's going to make us a church that loves a city like this? You know, whenever we do these sermons on the city, I, I always, part of me always feels like it's really easy to get inspired when you kind of hear these stories. It's really easy to get inspired. But here's the truth. The truth is to love the city like this will be very hard. It will be very costly. It will be very inconvenient. See, there, there are much cheaper places to live than Oakland. You probably know this. You've been looking, you know, on Zillow. You look at apartments, apartment.com. There are much cheaper places to live. There are much safer places to live. There are much easier places to live. So why would you stay? Because it's going to be hard. And it will be inconvenient. And it will be costly. And you see, what we need is much more than just inspiration. Rodney Stark points out that when the plagues hit, as we just read, 
that it was the Greeks and the Romans and everyone else did everything they could to avoid those who were dying from the plagues. But it was the Christians who stayed in the city to care for them, even though it meant they might die too. Now, where in the world did they get an idea like that from? They got it from Jesus. They got it from a man who showed up as a human being and claimed to be God. A God who came into the world, who took on flesh, and who physically moved in. Christianity is the only religion that says this, by the way. That God became a person. That he came into the world as a human being. Jesus came into the world, but he, but he was not of the world. People watched him and they said, who, who lives like this? Who, who loves like this? Who forgives like this? Who heals like this? Who is merciful? Who is kind like this? Who cares for the poor like this? Who sees those who feel forgotten like this? He lived a life that was so counter, it was a countercultural life. And it wasn't just a countercultural life, but it was a perfect life. It was a sinless life. And then he gave up his life. Coming into this world did not just cost Jesus his time, and it did not just cost him his money. And it did not just cost him his comfort. It cost him his life. Why did he do it? Here's what the Christian gospel says. He did not do it for himself. He did it for us. He did it so we could be blessed. What does that mean? He did it so that we could have the blessing of God's favor. The blessing of God's love. The blessing of God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. You see, loving the city, friends, it does not start with inspiration. I hope you do not just leave here with that today because it will not last long. It does not start with inspiration. It does not start with determination. It starts right here at this table. Before you can be sent out to love the city, you have to receive God's love for you, And that is the invitation of this bread and this cup. It is to know the love of God for you. God doesn't just love broken cities. Guess what? God loves broken people. And there's no one in this room that God cannot love. And if we are going to move out to love this place like God loves it, it all starts right here where we eat at God's table where we experience his love and we experience his welcome and we experience his embrace so that we can walk out those doors and live lives that are radically different. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me.
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this table and for the good news that it proclaims to us. That before we ever sacrifice anything for you, you tell us that you have sacrificed everything for us. Would you help us to feast on that reality this morning so that we might be sent out this week? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.